This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. In today's episode, we'll be taking a closer look at trial data surrounding different antihyperglycemic agent classes, including GLP-1 receptor agonists, SGLT2 inhibitors, and DPP-4 inhibitors. We'll then join Professor Jens Juhl Holst for a discussion of how to consider all these data in the context of clinical decision-making. If you're already familiar with safety and efficacy data across these classes, please do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview. And remember, links to all references we discuss in this session are available in the episode notes. So, selecting between therapeutic classes in diabetes has always been a challenge due to the volume of consideration criteria. Algorithms are available to help select between agents, which will be the focus of our next episode. But for now, how do different antihypoglycemic classes compare? It can be difficult to answer this question, particularly due to the lack of a suitable large-scale randomized controlled trial to compare all available agents against one another. However, over the last decade, certain trends have been observed across classes through a combination of head-to-head trials, phase 3 trials, and general clinical experience. In terms of glycemic efficacy, phase 3 trials demonstrated similar HbA1c reduction in both SGLT2 inhibitors and DPP4 inhibitors. In general, the agents are associated with a reduction of approximately 7 millimoles per mole, or 0.6%, as reported by a meta-analysis of SGLT2 inhibitors by Pinto et al. from 2015, and a review of DPP4 inhibitors by Craddy et al. from 2014. On the whole, data showed that GLP-1 receptor agonists are more efficacious. A comparison review by Anna Chiara Uccellatore in 2015 reported an approximate mean reduction of 11 millimoles per mole, or 1.0% across the class, although there are within-class differences. This ranges from 0.84% for albaglutide in the Harmony 2 trial to 1.53% for semaglutide in the Sustain 1 trial. Differences in weight loss efficacy are also seen across GLP-1 receptor agonists, but in general weight loss is between approximately 1 and 2.5 kilograms across the class, but can be much higher. For example, in the sustained 7 trial, dilaglutide demonstrated a weight loss of 3.5 kilograms and semaglutide a weight loss of 6.5 kilograms. Similarly, for SGLT2 inhibitors, Pinto et al.'s review reported mean weight losses of between 1.8 and 2.66 kilograms across empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and dapagliflozin. DPP4 inhibitors, by contrast, are considered weight neutral and have not demonstrated a significant effect on either weight loss or weight gain. Beyond weight loss, DPP4 inhibitors as a class are also associated with an absence of multifactorial effects in general, neutrality that extends to their side effect profile. As described by Beau Arren in his 2019 review on the history of DPP4 inhibitors, the class is associated with a low risk of adverse events. However, in cardiovascular outcome trials, the agents demonstrated non-inferiority for risk of major cardiovascular endpoints as compared to placebo controls. Similarly, recent data such as the Carolina trial further demonstrated their neutrality in terms of renal endpoints, demonstrating that overall the class present neutral effects on cardiorenal outcomes. By contrast, GLP-1 receptor agonists and STLT2 inhibitors have demonstrated positive outcomes data, but are also associated with some adverse events. For GLP-1 receptor agonists, these positive outcomes include a small reduction in blood pressure, 
cardiovascular protection, and some suspected positive renal effects as well. In terms of cardiovascular protection, there has been a mixture of positive and neutral cardiovascular outcome trials across GLP-1 receptor agonists. However, meta-analysis performed by Christensen et al. in 2019 indicates that this is indeed a class effect, although other analyses have found some between-trial statistical heterogeneity. In addition, there is evidence to suggest that GLP-1 receptor agonists feature positive renal effects. Renal outcomes have been explored as secondary endpoints in a number of these cardiovascular trials, and the same analysis performed by Christensen et al. concluded that across trials there was a significant improvement in a broad composite kidney outcome. Dedicated renal outcome trials are currently ongoing to confirm these effects. Finally, GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with some adverse events, primarily nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. However, as described in the Romero's 2018 review, these are usually transient and of mild to moderate severity, with patients developing a tolerance over time. Looking at SGLT2 inhibitors, they also demonstrate positive outcomes across the class. Cardioprotection is also a well-documented benefit, particularly for heart failure. For example, the DAPA-HF trial demonstrated that dapagliflozin is associated with a reduction in hospitalisation for heart failure even among non-diabetic patients with HEFREF. The renal benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors have also been proven across trials, most recently with the Credence trial, where participants with impaired renal function saw a 30% lower relative risk for the composite renal outcome in the canagliflozin group compared to the placebo group. Finally, the class is generally well tolerated, but some adverse events are associated. David Fitchett's recent safety update on the class reports that the most frequent side effect is genitourinary infection, which is usually mild to moderate in intensity and easily treated. Observational studies have shown an increased risk of amputation with some SGLT2 inhibitors, leading to guidelines recommending increased observation for signs of foot ulceration among high-risk patients receiving an SGLT2 inhibitor. So that was the data, but how should these data influence your decisions between therapeutic classes? Joining us this week is Professor Jens Yulholst of the University of Copenhagen for his advice on comparing trial data in daily practice. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Holst. So our first question is, is it possible to compare any of the cardiovascular outcome trial data between drug classes? For example, is any class associated with superior reductions in specific cardiovascular events, such as myocardial infarction or stroke? So, uh, <clears throat> drug classes. Uh, so, uh, there are some drug classes out there that have been uh, be become very much in focus lately. And, of course, we're talking about, on one hand, the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And, on the other hand, we're talking about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And um, so, can, can, can they be compared? And, or do they have similarities or differences? And certainly, they do have differences, very marked differences, actually. So, um, talking about uh, the outcomes, the outcome trials, and we have several of, of these outcome trials for both classes of drugs, uh, so we know some things about it. Uh, there's one thing we can say for absolutely for sure, that is, if we look at patients with heart failure, the um, GLP-1 receptor agonists do not seem to have any effects on this at all. Whereas the SGLT2 inhibitors seem to have a tremendous effects on particularly heart failure. So here we have a huge difference between the two. 
Um, the problem is that uh, all of these outcome trials have as their primary goal, they have primary endpoint, they have the MACE, the major uh, adverse cardiovascular events. And uh, that is a lump together of, as you know, cardiovascular death and uh, non-fatal myocardial infarction and non-fatal stroke. Uh, and uh, most of the investigations have uh, made it uh, to have a superior uh, uh, reduced risk of having MACE uh, when you're on a drug as compared to placebo. But the reduction is, of course, not tremendously large. Um, so in the leader study, for instance, it was about 13% reduction in relative risk. And uh, if we take something like Empereg, it was also just about a 13% reduction. So from that point of view, they're pretty similar. Uh, so the next thing you would be interested in is, of course, to try to come in and look at the data in more detail and try to see if there are specific conditions, if you're old, if you're young, if you have renal disease and all that. But the problem is that whenever you do that, you also violate the statistics of the trial and you inevitably run into terrible problems. And that is completely clear if you look at something like the GLP-1 receptor agonist, which are the ones I know best. Uh, if you, for instance, look at uh, the leader study of liraglutide, 1.8 milligrams, uh, which was running three and a half years, up to five years, actually, uh, then, then uh, what, what you have is a nice effect on cardiovascular death. But if you look at uh, something like semaglutide, uh, the other trial we have, which is um, uh, the outcome trials for semaglutide, then we have no effect at all on cardiovascular mortality. So does this mean that semaglutide does not have any effect on cardiovascular mortality, whereas liraglutide has a significant effect? Of course not. Uh, the two drugs are very similar, and they operate via the same receptor. They have differences in pharmacokinetics, which is okay, um, and that is perhaps the most important difference between the two. There may be other subtle differences, but it's not something that could explain that one has absolutely uh, no effect on cardiovascular mortality, whereas the other has. So, so that is an example of the problems we have in these outcome trials. Uh, most likely, the explanation for the failure of semaglutide in the sustained six trial uh, was that um, it was a shorter trial. Uh, it was running until the sufficient number of events had been uh, occurring. And um, it was not at all designed to do this. It was a pre-registration trial. So uh, most likely explanation is simply that not a sufficient number of cardiovascular deaths occurred in that group. Whereas in the, um, in the leader trial, uh, the group was much larger. The study was running for much longer, and therefore there was a stronger effect. So, so that's the kind of problems you run into if you start to compare them. For instance, in the sigmaclutide, the sustained six trial, there was a significant effect on the occurrence of stroke. And if you take the famous Empe-Liflosin study, the Empe-Reg study, and look at stroke in particular, there was a tendency, not a significant one, but a tendency to towards an increase in stroke. Does this mean that the SGLC2 inhibitors increase the risk of stroke and that the GLP-1s reduce the risk of stroke? Unfortunately, we cannot conclude any of the two because simply because we violate the statistical power of these analyses. So those conclusions cannot be made. 
And the same is true when we start to talk about myocardial infarction. Um, so uh, we, it is really more or less impossible to, to pull out that kind of uh, conclusions from these studies. That, that's the, really the, the problem. Um, there are some indications that the SGLT2 inhibitors have uh, some very acute and very uh, pronounced actions on the heart and the cardiovascular system. Uh, for one thing is the, uh, the extracellular volume constriction that you see with these agents. And uh, many people think that this is an important mechanism of action, uh, a kind of diuretic mechanism of action. And that also explains, perhaps, that they have this pronounced effect on particularly heart failure. Uh, the GLP-1s do not have any of those effects, not at all. Uh, instead, they may have some effects on progression of atherosclerosis. There are a lot of more or less circumstantial uh, evidences about this, uh, and that may be the reason that they are particularly effective uh, in, in, in preventing things to happen. For instance, in, again, in the sustained six trials, um, there was a, a almost 50% reduction in, in, uh, in procedures and cardiovascular procedures, um, uh, surgical procedures um, that were, as I said, prevented by almost 50%, suggesting that with these drugs, you can perhaps prevent some of the some of the uh, atherosclerotic events from happening. But that is, again, uh, you can't say for sure that this is the case. Thank you for such a detailed response. You already touched on this a little bit as you looked over the wider GLP-1 receptor agonist class. But among these agents, there appear to be a number of distinct effects between individual agents. Why do you think this is? Looking at the GLP-1 receptor agonists, there are, of course, differences. And there are there are pharmacokinetic differences, and there are probably also differences in actions. So first of all, the, sh the sh short-acting ones that we talk about, the, the exenatide alone and, and, and the lixisenatide, uh, they do not provide <clears throat> a full coverage of the 24 hours of the day. Um, the lixi obviously does not uh, with its single dose and, and the exenatide with this uh, twice daily dosing regimen only covers less than half of the, of the wake hours and also during the nighttime. So, so there is a, a huge difference. And um, the lixisenatide trial came out with no effect on the cardiovascular actions at all. Um, and also, there are huge differences here because the short-acting uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, they do not have a very pronounced effect on fasting glucose values, whereas they have um, a pronounced effect on the postprandial glucose levels. And uh, again, uh, this is an action that is mainly because probably of their effect on, on, on gastric emptying rates. Um, but this means that uh, for uh, most of the day, most of the 24 hours, you don't really have a pronounced effect of these short-acting agonists. And I think that this also explains that if if I'm correct in saying and thinking that uh, perhaps some of the effects of the GLP-1s is a, a prevention or delaying or a reduction in the atherosclerotic erotic and inflammatory processes, then it also follows that if it is good to maintain the action of the GLP-1s, then it's clear that those that have a, an abbreviated time of action, uh, the, the short-acting ones, that they also have less of an effect on the cardiovascular events. Uh, 
Once we come to the more long-acting ones, it's getting somewhat more problematic. And the, the biggest problem really is that we don't understand what is going on here. We really don't understand the actions on the heart. We don't know where the receptors sit. We don't know what mechanisms are really affected when we're looking at. The only thing we, we, we really know is that all of the GLP-1 uh, agonists, they increase heart rate. And everybody agrees that to increase heart rate is not a good effect. So there's, there's a lot of things we don't know. They, the GLP-1 receptor agonists also lower blood pressure, and that is thought to be very, very good. But, but we don't know what the mechanism is here. We have no idea. The acute effect of GLP-1, as I said, is to increase heart rate and to increase cardiac output. That would everything else being equal, increase the blood pressure. But at the same time, there appears to be a dilatation of vascular uh, beds uh, in various tissues uh, that will kind of uh, compensate for the increase in, in the cardiac output. So the result is no change in blood pressure. But that, of course, does not explain at all the lowering of blood pressure, pressure that we see during prolonged therapy. So there are so many things we don't know. <clears throat> and, and that also means that we, we don't really know to, what to look for when we compare the various GLP-1 receptor agonists. So um, for instance, albiglutide, uh, which is, a, is one of the weakest in terms of glycemic effects, nevertheless had a nice cardiovascular effect uh, reducing MACE in that study. Um, so, and another problem that has come up when we are comparing them is that the different cardiovascular outcome trials are quite different. Um, different groups of patients are being included, uh, different uh, severities of, of cardiovascular disease or absence of it are included. And that means that it is really hard uh, to compare the, the, the drugs. And of course, there's nobody who really wants to come out and, and do a comparison of them. The, the only comparison, perhaps, that one can, can have a little bit of trust in is the comparison between, or it's not even a comparison, but is when you try to compare something like semaglutide and liraglutide, uh, because the design or the population that was studied, the design was completely different, but the population that, that was the study was more or less the same. And in that study, semaglutide came out with a reduction of, of about 25% uh, in MACE. So uh, considerably more than, than, for instance, both impetliflozin and, and, and liraglutide in, in their studies. So that's one of the largest reduction in MACE rates that we've seen. And this could, of course, indicate that this is a little bit more powerful. Uh, the effects on body weight and the effects on blood glucose and the effects on blood pressure are also somewhat greater with semaglutide. So all in all, it seems that it is a more potent and efficacious agent. And if you follow up that line of thinking, then you say, okay, when it's more efficacious on the metabolic effects, then it's probably also more effective on the cardiovascular effects. And uh, that's all we can say uh, currently, I, would, I think. Thank you. Now, looking even more specifically at semaglutide this time, in terms of cardiovascular events, we saw a positive result for the injectable formulation in sustained 6, but a neutral effect for the oral formulation in Pioneer 6. Why do you think this is? Yeah, so um, here we're comparing 
two molecular forms of semaglutide. One is the injectable, one is the oral formulation. So the first thing we can start to do is to um, look at whether there are true differences in the active ingredient in the two preparations. And both of them release or uh, cause a, a, an increase in the plasma concentration of, of semaglutide, of course. And that molecule is exactly the same in the two situations. It's just a question of how it gets there. One is the injection, of course. The other one has to pass the G to be, to be, to be taken in as a pill and is absorbed in the stomach. But uh, uh, the way it's absorbed is merely a coating with what is called snack that uh, allows or facilitates the penetrance of the molecule via the mucosa and the gastric in the in the stomach wall and into the bloodstream so once it's in the bloodstream it's exactly the same as the substance that was injected subcutaneously so from that point of view they're exactly the same now so the next thing that that comes up is the dosing so how much can you obtain with the two uh, compounds and um, so here we have uh, the problem that there is a limit to to what you can obtain with the both with the oral actually and with the subcutaneous but the subcutaneous dosing appears to be a little bit more efficacious if you will and probably leads to somewhat higher concentrations than the oral the problem is has something to do with the side effects uh, it has been felt via the phase 2 and phase 3 studies that um, the dosing uh, for the oral tablet, uh, could not be elevated any further. We know actually from the phase two studies that somewhat higher doses had effects both on met metabolic effects and and yeah, it's metabolic effects and and also weight losing effects that uh, were as good as those elicited by subcutaneous um, semaglutide. So we know that you can, if you can use higher doses of the oral, then you would probably get exactly the same. Um, but that was not the decision. The decision was that it was safer to use the selected doses that have been, that now have been marketed. And, and uh, so in fact, uh, the explanation for any differences is most likely the dosing uh, the selected dosing, and, and again, the, the dosing was selected carefully because of uh, a view of side effects, but, uh, but that is the most, uh, the most likely explanation for the differences. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you, James. No, it was a pleasure to join you here, and uh, it's really an interesting time we're living in, and we have these uh, excellent new drugs, and I'm really happy to be able to contribute to this. This brings us to the end of the episode. To summarise, each antihypoglycemic class is associated with a number of benefits and considerations beyond glycemic control. DPP-4 inhibitors are largely neutral on wider outcomes, offering a favourable efficacy profile but without any weight loss or cardiorenal protection. SGLT2 inhibitors feature some weight loss and are notably potent at reducing heart failure and kidney-related outcomes. Finally, GLP-1 receptor agonists feature some within-class differences, but are largely associated with significant weight loss, protection from atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and may feature some level of renal protection that will be explored further in future trials. As we discussed earlier, all references and guidelines discussed in today's episode are available in the episode description. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, join the discussion online by tagging us in your tweets with at DKI Practice. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app 
or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thanks for listening. We look forward to joining you next time when we'll be comparing guideline recommendations on how to select between agents, depending on individual patient characteristics.